You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 13. Be reading verses 1 through 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread, ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, We come before you, every one of us, sinners. Our only hope being your serving us. Your people come having from our last gathering freshly sinned again and again and again. I've no doubt every one of us sinned on the way here this morning. We need the service of your Lord. And there are those here that are completely defiled. They've never known the washing of regeneration. Theirs is not fresh dirt on a 
clean garment. They're completely soiled with sin. And only the blood of Christ can wash them clean. And we would plead, Father, for the service of your Son this morning for all of us. And then, having been moved, empowered, and with a message of the service of Christ to herald, may we serve one another as your Lord, your Son, has modeled for us. In whose name we pray, amen. This is the opening scene of the book of glory. The opening scene of the book of glory. Chapters 11 and 12 have prepared you for the second half of John that begins right here. The book of signs concludes with the sign of the resurrection of Lazarus. And so we proceed forward to the cross knowing that the one who has purposed to go there is the resurrection and the life. And understanding that, we're not perplexed that Mary's burial preparation is the perfect prelude to the triumphant entry. Makes perfect sense. The hour of Jesus' supreme humiliation, 12 and verse 27, the hour of His woe, is the hour of His glorification, 12 verse 23. By the cross... The Christ will conquer. He will judge the world. He will cast out the ruler of this world. He will make atonement so that all the scattered children of God might be gathered home. 12, 31 through 33. And so it's fitting that the book of glory opens then with one of the most humble scenes. In the life of our Lord. The washing of His disciples' feet. This not only introduces the book of glory, the latter half of John. It introduces more narrowly what's known as the farewell discourse. Chapters 13 through 17. Jesus' public ministry of signs gives way now to a private ministry of instruction on the eve of His betrayal. Some have analyzed this discourse and likened it to a testament. His last words, parting instructions, and in many ways it is very much like a testament, but I think the better analysis is this. Whereas in the book of signs, discourses frequently followed those signs, unpacking their significance. Now we've come to the sign of signs. There's only one sign in the second half of John, the book of glory, the death and resurrection of our Lord. Now the discourse precedes the sign. So prior, the discourse followed the signs. Now it precedes the sign. D.A. Carson comments, several of the signs in the first half of the fourth, fourth gospel are immediately followed by extended discourses that unpack the significance of the sign. Here the order is reversed. One of the purposes of the chapters immediately before us, embracing the Last Supper, the Farewell Discourse, the Final Prayer of Jesus, John 13 through 17, is to unpack before the event the significance of Jesus' departure, His death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, and the consequent coming of the Holy Spirit. This introductory act, opening the book of glory, the farewell discourse, this introductory act is itself a kind of sign unpacking the sign of signs. Our text today falls into two, uh, three parts with two intertwined inseparable points. Three parts, two points. First part is narrative. Followed by, second part, a dialogue, and then finally, a monologue. So, narrative, 
dialogue, monologue. And the dialogue and monologue unpack the two intertwined, inseparable points. So you have the narrative itself where we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then in the dialogue, we see that this act of washing their feet speaks to something Jesus does for us. And then in the monologue that ends this text, we see that the washing of the disciples' feet speaks to something we are to do. So the dialogue, something Jesus does for us. The monologue, Jesus tells us something we are to do. Now, theologians have long argued about various theories of the atonement, ways of understanding the significance, the meaning, the impact, the purpose of the cross of Christ, His atonement. Three dominant theories are penal substitution, Christus victor, and Christus exemplar. So penal substitution, Jesus dies in our stead for our sins. Christus exemplar, Christ our example. Christus victor, Christ uh, is his victory over our foes, the devil, Satan, the forces of evil. We see all three of these within the short space of chapters 12 and 13. Christus victor, Christ conquers by the cross. That's seen in 12, 21 through 23. The other two are in our text this morning. Penal substitution, Christus exemplar. With these three particular theories of the atonement, it's not a matter of which. It's not a matter of which one is true. It is a matter of ordering. All three are true, but one is paramount and foundational, without which the others are empty and meaningless. Only because the service of Christ cleanses us is the service of Christ then a model for us. Only because the service of Christ cleanses us is the service of Christ then a model for us. I hope you see that as we go along. Once again, we're told, begin the narrative, verses 1 through 5, we're told that it is before the feast of the Passover, verse 1. Again and again, as we're going to the cross, we're being told it is the Passover. And so we hear John's introductory words ringing in our ears still, 129, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that phrase, before the feast of the Passover, has troubled many so that they ask, is the supper, verse 2, during supper, is the supper being spoken of here different than the last supper? Because the synoptic gospels all make it clear that... The Last Supper took place on Passover. And so some have argued that we have here a separate dinner. We have a Wednesday evening meal before the Thursday evening Passover. But I take all the phrases that we have here relating to Judas's betrayal, especially those that you have in 21 through 30, all these passages that speak of Judas's betrayal and how it unfolds, I take them to make it impossible that this is anything other than the Last Supper that's being referred to here whenever Jesus washes the disciples' feet. So then what do we do with this phrase, before the feast of the Passover? I take it to mean immediately before the feast of the Passover, just before the feast of the Passover. During the supper, the devil's already put it into Judas' heart to betray him, verse 2. So it's during the supper, and then Jesus, verse 4, rises from the supper. The washing of, of, of feet would be something expected as soon as you enter the home. And that having not occurred, they've sat down for the supper. It's just beginning. No feet are washed. Jesus then rises right as the feast has begun. And washes their feet. But further, you'll see that whenever we're told before the feast of the Passover, he's not speaking in reference to this act of washing the disciples' feet. He's speaking, we'll, you'll see shortly, of a disposition Jesus had before the Passover that's being carried over as they commence the supper. 
by framing it in this way, here's what I think John is really after. The Passover is your expectation. And you carry that with you through the whole of the farewell discourse. See, I think John has this kind of theological aim before the Passover. And you're carrying that expectation with you as Jesus goes to the cross. The Passover lamb. But notice that both of these phrases that we have in verse 1 are wins. In less than 24 hours, Jesus knows that his time will come to depart out of this world to go to his Father. All that lies ahead is with the Passover, the Passover, the crucifixion of our Lord on the horizon. But it's not before the Passover Jesus knew. No, it's before the Passover when Jesus knew that his time has come to depart out of this world. Both of these phrases are only wins. Where's the what? This is the disposition Jesus carries forward with him as the Lord's Supper begins. Having loved his own who were in the world, here's the what. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end before the feast of the Passover. He loved them to the end when he knew that his time had come to depart out of this world. He loved them to the end. There's a love that he has right now that's going to endure until the end. And then you're told not only when that happened, you're told how it happened. He loved them having loved them. So having loved them, he loves them with a love that will love them to the end. His love fills all tenses. It's encompassed all his days with them. He loves them right then in a moment, in that moment with a love that loves them to the end, having loved them. The Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Son so loved His own that having loved them, He loved them to the end, giving Himself. John Calvin said all of them, the Gospels, had the same object in view to point out Christ. The three former exhibit His body if we may be permitted to use the expression. But John exhibits his soul. Here, John opens up the soul of our Lord. And what do we see? When the Passover is on the horizon, when he knows that his hour has come to depart this world, John opens up the soul of our Lord. And in this moment, what do we see? Love on top of love. Flowing to the end with love. J.C. Ryle comments, The love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and marrow of the gospel. That He should love us at all and care for our souls. That He should love us before we love Him or even know anything about Him. That He should love us so much as to come into the world to save us. Take our nature on Him. Bear our sins and die for us on the cross. All this is wonderful indeed. It is a kind of love to which there is nothing like among men. He loved them to the end. He loved them until he cried out to tell us die. It is finished. One cannot reflect on John 3.16 too often. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You can't reflect on that too often. But I think we have failed to reflect often enough clearly on John 13.1. Jesus, having loved them, loved them to the end. And so it is that during the supper, Little doubt, just as it begins, Jesus rises to manifest this love. But His actions here are not just a demonstration that He loves. They're not just, an Ill, they're, they're not just a 
an uh, overflow of his love, they are an illustration of that love that will love them to the end. You can see this in the parallelism that's involved. Verse 1, Jesus loved them and he loved them knowing. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, rose, verse 4, from the supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So he loved them knowing, and he washed them knowing. And what's knowing in both instances is essentially the same thing. He knew first that his Father had given all things into his hands, verse 3. Jesus as the Son eternally had all things. This is referring to Him being given all things as the Christ, as the Son of David, as the God-man. He's being given all things. He is given works, 5 and chapter, chapter 5, verse 36. He's given judgment, chapter 5 and verse 22. He's given a people, sheep, his own, they're called. Chapter 10, verse 29, 17, 11, 17, 24. And he's given all things because he was given a cup. And because he drank it down to the dregs. He is as our Redeemer and Lord given all things to reconcile to the Father. 18, 11, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Because he drank that cup, he's given all things. Colossians 1, 15-20 speaks of the Son who had all things being given all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what the Son eternally and always and without any pause has always had. He has all things as Lord. Now listen to Him being given all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so He's been given all things as redeeming Lord. The second, Christ knew that He had come from God and that He was going back to God, His Father, verse 3. You sense something here, not, not only did the Son love us, but oh, how He loved His Father. Being sent from his father, he's going back to his father. And I think this helps you understand something of that striking phrase in Hebrews 12. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of his father. He went with joy to the cross because on the other cross he knew he was going back to his father. Now, knowing all of this, what did Jesus do? He took the form of a servant. In light of what's happening here, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He's, he's left his place. He's taken on the towel. Listen to Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think Jesus' actions here perfectly illustrate what it means that he emptied himself. When Jesus here took off his outer garments and put a towel around him, he didn't become less in his being. He became a servant. And so the point of, of what we're told in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, isn't that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity? He emptied himself of his dignity. When you remember that the holy God of heaven in the Son took on human flesh, when you remember 
the magnitude of what of the humiliation of Christ involved in that, you're not shocked that as an illustration of the climactic moment of His humiliation on the cross, that He would stoop and wash the disciples' feet. When you've already knelt so low, what does it to reach out your hand a little lower? Even so, this is a powerful illustration of the truth of of chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Creator among His creatures. The Lord among His slaves. These were days of dusty streets. Open sandals. Animals trafficking the highways. Washing Feet would be an expected hospitality upon entering a home. But it would be a servant or a slave who performed the job. Some even insisted that this was below a Jewish slave. Such behavior would obliterate all known social propriety. And yet, if this boggles you again, I say you don't understand the Incarnation. What is shocking about this is as it is an illustration of the incarnation. And then you realize that the incarnation was preparation for propitiation. The incarnation was preparation. That he might die in our stead. And you understand that the whole of Jesus' earthly life was one of humble service. Every day of his life among us to the end living in our stead was one of humble service he was wearing the towel of a servant in the wearing of human flesh all his earthly days and now he serves in this most jolting of ways we're told with the Passover commencing with love filling his heart enduring to the end And knowing that his exaltation lies on the other side. And then, there's Peter. Talking. Whenever we come to the next portion of the text, this dialogue, verses 6 through 11. Of course, it would be Peter who's talking. And to be fair, his first words, this question, at face value, are understandable. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus' answer should have been sufficient to end the dialogue with one exchange. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Several times in this passage, we're told Jesus knows. And now he tells Peter and the rest of them, they don't know. When you understand the incarnation, whenever you understand the distance that Jesus has already stooped in taking on human flesh, when you understand that the incarnation was preparation for propitiation, you understand the humility of Christ. You aren't stunned that He would wash feet in this instance as an anticipatory act of what lies ahead. But even if you don't, understand any of that just a basic level of humility would say when my Lord says I don't understand I should shut up afterward understanding is promised when will they understand in chapter 12 and verse 16 we read these words his disciples did not understand these things at first but when Jesus was glorified Then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to them. This will be unfolded. Why this is in the following chapters when we read things like this in chapter 16 and verse 33. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. But right now, in this moment, this just proves too unconventional for Peter. And so despite Jesus' answer, the slave objects to his Lord, you shall never wash my feet, verse 8. 
Unbeknownst to Peter, this is an identical objection to the one he made earlier when Jesus is speaking about the cross, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He said just as foolish a thing here, the same thing. It's an identical protest. Matthew 16, 22, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Same objection, you shall never wash my feet. This is pride masked as humility. And we're not immune. We like to think we do something for Jesus. We like to think we need to be something for Jesus. And Jesus does not soften the ramifications of such pride when it's brought before Him. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus has given all things as Redeemer. And you have no share in the inheritance of the Son if He does not wash you. You have no part in the kingdom if He does not wash you. If Jesus does not wash you, you cannot sup with Him at His table. You cannot commune on His broken body and His spilled blood. You have no part in the new covenant. Pride wants to do. Pride wants to be. Let the humility of your Lord humble you. You need His service. How astonishing that our Lord, when He took the form of a servant, wasn't simply serving His Father, He served us. Now there is a difference. He served as a man coming under the law, obeying His Father. He doesn't come under us. Rather, in relation to us, His service doubly establishes His Lordship over us. He is doubly our Lord. Saints, Jesus is doubly your Lord by His service. He doubly has rights to you now. He is your Lord by right of creation, and He is your Lord by right of redemption. His service does not lessen His Lordship. It amplifies it, doubles down on it. And it's this redemptive lordship that you have no part in unless he serves you. You are filthy, sinner. You are filthy. You are vile. You are putrid. You are stained. And your only hope is that omnipotence would bow down to serve you. And that's precisely what Christ did in taking on flesh. Do you think that you could come to his table otherwise unless he cleansed you? There's only one who can cleanse you. And if he does not cleanse you, you have no share in him. Do not object to his service. Welcome it now. Lord Jesus, wash me clean by your blood. But just as rashly, Peter now replies, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my feet. And my hands and my head, excuse me. And Jesus' next words have puzzled some. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And so some think that Jesus transitions here from speaking about the cleansing of regeneration to the cleansing that follows in your Christian life that happens with fellowship and, and renewed communion with the Lord. I think that Jesus is simply pointing out social custom and saying, Peter, I just need to wash your feet. And what is being spoken of and anticipated in my washing your feet, you already have. And so right now you just need me to wash your feet. He's saying something like this. Peter, don't turn this parable into an allegory. I just need to wash your feet. And the washing of your feet speaks to something you already have. In John 15, 3, Jesus will tell them, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. In Ephesians 5, Paul will speak of Christ giving himself for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
So whenever Titus speaks, whenever Titus 2.9 speaks of, Paul, speaks of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, we need to understand that happening, as Peter tells us, by the living and abiding Word of God, the Word that was preached to you, the Gospel. As Christ crucified is proclaimed, the Spirit washes, regenerates, renews. But then Jesus qualifies His answer. Not all of them are clean. Whenever Peter spoke a lot better earlier in chapter 6, following the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' discourse unpacking that, saying, we have believed, we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, did I not choose you, and yet one of you is a devil? Dear souls, not all of you are clean. Some of you are a Judas. You might have a magnificent ministry. No one can identify any difference between Judas's ministry and the other apostles when they were sent out. You might have a position, a high position within the church of God. You might have the, the outward sign of washing. You, you may have gotten wet, but you've never been baptized because you've never been in union by faith with Christ in His death and resurrection. You're not clean. Look to your own soul. Are you clean? If not, repent. Believe in Christ, knowing that the blood of Christ can wash the foulest clean, even the greatest hypocrite. Now, this is, this is primary. This is paramount. This is the foundational application of this washing. But from this primary stems the secondary. On top of this foundation of grace, there is a command, a structure of command. There's a passive and an active application of this washing. Passively, we need to be washed. Actively, we are to wash. Just as in 12, 23 through 26, the cross is not only something done for us, there is also something about the cross that we are to emulate. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is speaking of His death. That's clear. Then it switches. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So now Jesus begins to unpack in this monologue, verses 12 through 20, Something of the secondary application. But notice that he do, does so, verse 12, once he's resumed his place. So here's our Lord who has temporarily taken, in their eyes, he, he's tempor temporarily taken on the form of a servant. And now he resumes his place. And having resumed his place, he then teaches them. He gives them some understanding. He doesn't tell them about the significance of this act of washing as it anticipates his atonement, but he does begin to unpack something of the significance of this in its secondary application. The paramount significance will have to wait, but the secondary he begins to unpack for them now. And as you see this, I don't know how you can't but conclude this is anticipatory of Jesus resuming his place and from that place sending his spirit to give them understanding. As we understand this, we need to see this is a secondary implication. Before we can die for others, we need one to die for us. Before we can serve others, we need one to serve us. Nonetheless, Christus exemplar is a real application of the cross. This washing anticipates the crucifixion of our Lord. And yes, we need to remember that the cross was done for us, that's primary. But secondarily, on the cross, we see modeled for us something we are to do. We cannot wash sins away. But we can serve one another 
and we serve one another because our sins have been washed away. The death of Christ is utterly unique. And if it's not utterly unique, there's nothing for us praiseworthy to emulate in it. If someone says to you, I love you so much I could die for you, and then kills themselves for no reason right then to prove how much they love you, there's nothing loving in that act. It's selfish. It harms. Jesus' death was not like that. It was utterly unique. There was meaning, significance, purpose. And it's because His death was not like that that it's then exemplary for us. Now, as a model for us, the humble service of Christ here is unmatched, unprecedented. There's nothing like it, as we see in verses 13 through 16. Their Lord and teacher washed their feet. Again, this was a task for servants, a task for slaves, a task that some considered even below Jewish slaves. This was never a task you would see even peers doing for one another. There's no record of peers washing one another if Another's feet. There's absolutely no record of a superior washing an inferior's feet. And this is why we come to this private supper. The disciples have all showed up. They've made preparations, but it's time to eat. No one's washed anyone's feet. William Temple writes, We would gladly wash the feet of our divine Lord, but he disconcertingly insists on washing ours and bids us wash our neighbor's feet. You need Jesus' washing. He does not need yours, but your neighbor does. And you may very well think yourself superior to your neighbor. You might very well be superior to your neighbor. Objectively, truthfully considered, you look and you just know, I don't mean to be arrogant, but I, I'm just, I'm better than him. You might be better than your neighbor, but you're not better than Jesus. And Jesus stooped to wash the feet of even his betrayer. The distance between you and that sinner across the street is infinitesimal. The distance between you and your Lord in heaven is infinite. These words become all the more striking. What Jesus is doing here when you look at Luke's account of what followed the supper in Luke. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the, one, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So can you see why he would then tell them? Those who know and do these things, they're blessed. The blessedness is not simply in the knowing. Nor, I think, should we say the blessedness is simply in the doing. There are some people who do, and they do for all the wrong kind of reasons. It's in knowing and doing these things that blessedness is found. The world looks for joy in being the greatest. Our joy is found in being like the greatest. That's the ambition. Know and do it for those reasons. I want to be like my Lord. But in speaking of this blessedness, as he did with being clean, he makes it clear he's not speaking to all of them once more. Verse 18. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. One was chosen as a disciple, but he was not chosen by the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's not one of Christ's own. And this is to fulfill Scripture, Psalm 41 and verse 9. It's a Psalm of David, 
We see the enemies longing for his death. Listen to the immediate context around the quotation we have here. They, these are the enemies of David. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Then David, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Jesus says he speaks of this betrayal for the faith of his, of his own. That they may believe that he is Yahweh. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place you may believe that I, the he is supplied here. You might believe that I am. Finally, our passage closes in a way that may puzzle us. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. How does this relate to Jesus' humiliation, to His washing the disciples' feet, towards the atonement He's going to make, to the, the, the serving of one another? How does this relate? I think first, there are three ways. First, it relates back in this contrast between the true and the false. True disciples, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Second, it takes you back to verse 16. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I think that's huge. For the kind of service Jesus is calling for in this text. And why he ends it saying the one who receives the one I send receives me. A chief service Jesus has in view here is the service of telling of the service of Christ. A chief service Jesus has in view here is the proclaiming, the sharing of the gospel. You cannot wash as Jesus washes, but you can tell of His washing. And then third, this relates to those who Jesus has washed as having a share in Him. Verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. But for those who are washed, they're sent out, and how they are received or not received is their attitude towards Jesus. They receive you, they receive Christ. They receive Christ, they receive the Father. This relates to Jesus' astonishing words in 2021. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How did the Father send Christ? Not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. You cannot give your life to make an atonement, but you can give your life to tell of the atonement that was made. Go forward and serve, and serve with a message. Without substitution, Christ's example is meaningless, and without this message, your service ultimately is meaningless. This is because the cross of Christ not only sets the example for our service, we're to serve in a cross-shaped way, the cross of Christ is the message of your service. Not just to serve for the sake of serving, as Jesus didn't just serve for the sake of serving here. You're to serve because you've been served by Christ. And His service, His cross, informs your service, it empowers your service, and it is the message of your service. So serve with love and knowledge. Serve with love. Love to the Father who gave His Son. Love to the Son who gave His life. Love for the disciples who already are. And love for the disciples who are not yet. But He will assuredly gather. And serve with knowledge. Knowledge of Christ's lowly service. Knowledge of your inferiority to your Lord. Knowledge of how you should imitate your Lord. And knowledge of how you cannot imitate your Lord. Knowledge of your sharing in Christ. Knowledge of the glory the joy 
that awaits you. Knowledge that there will be betrayal and covenant infidelity even within the body of Christ. Our Lord has told us it will be so. But knowledge that He will not lose any of His own who have been given to Him by His Father. Saints, our Lord has served us. So by grace now, Holy Spirit may be so. Our Lord has served us. And so now with a head full of knowledge afresh. And a heart full of love afresh. Let us go out. Serving others. Ultimately for the end of telling them of the Lord's service. Let's pray. Holy Father. May your spirit now give us something more of understanding. And with that hearts full more of love for you. Our triune God. And overflowing from that to serve others. Now Father we pray. We'll know something of this being received. Such that you're received and the Father's received. Make it so. Save souls now. Build a humility right now towards one another. There will be a witness and testimony to this world. Build right now a kind of humility. That will serve with the ambition of telling of your service. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.